Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number Four, Suchin Pandya, the Constitutional Accuracy of Legal Presumptions. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Sachin Pandya. Sachin is professor of law at the University of Connecticut School of Law, where he teaches employment law and torts. His scholarship typically focuses on employment and insurance issues. In his latest article, entitled The Constitutional Accuracy of Legal Presumptions, Sachin takes on the tough and often nebulous issue of evidentiary presumptions. As I'm sure many of you would agree, presumptions are a critical part of the proof process, yet they are often overshadowed by the rules governing admissibility, both in the classroom and in scholarship. Suchin's paper pays some much-needed attention to the topic and specifically considers the limits placed on presumptions by the Constitution. Okay, Suchin, thanks for coming on to Excited Utterance. Thanks for having me. So let me uh, begin by asking you how you got interested in presumptions and their constitutionality. I don't think it's unfair to say that most of your scholarship focuses on employment law, so why presumptions? I came about this in a kind of roundabout way. I was reading a paper which was criticizing the McDonnell-Douglas presumption in employment discrimination law. And without getting into the weeds, the basic idea was that of the paper involved an elaborate analogy between that presumption and res ipsa loquitur in tort. Something struck me as strange about that. I hadn't really thought of that, those two together, though I do teach torts as well as employment law, which led me to dig in more deeply in this very voluminous century-old literature on presumptions generally. And I went down the rabbit hole, and here's where I ended up. Maybe we can move to the meat of the article and turn to the turnip seed case, or more specifically, Mobile Jackson and Kansas City Railway v. Turnip Seed, which was decided in 1910 by the Supreme Court. Turnip seed features prominently in your article. Can you tell us a little bit about what turnip seed says and what you think is problematic about it? Yeah, so the case is called Turnip Seed. And so let, let me just say a little bit about the facts. It's 1905, and Ray Hicks is working for the railroad on the railroad tracks. He returns from dinner with his crew when a train passes by. It derails, and one of its freight cars falls over onto Hicks and kills him. So his wife and his children, and then later the administrator of their estate, that's Mr. Turnip Seed, they bring a wrongful death action against the railroad. At the time, we're in Mississippi. Mississippi had on its books a statutory presumption, which basically says that if you can show proof of injury involving the running of the locomotives, proof of that injury is prima facie evidence of the negligence of the employees of that railroad with respect to that injury. This presumption in Mississippi wasn't terribly unique. Other states had similar presumptions, uh, often involving railroads in their own statute books. Anyway, the case goes to trial. The judge instructs the jury on the presumption, and the jury awards damages. The railroad appeals. And soon after, the case goes to the U U.S. Supreme Court, 
And there, the railroad challenges this statutory presumption as violating the 14th Amendment because it shifted the burden of persuasion, they argue, making it arbitrarily easier to recover against railroads. No, says the Supreme Court, it only shifted the burden of production. And then, not stopping there, the court adds something, which as far as I can tell, none of the parties ever briefed. The court adds that you've got to show some rational connection between the fact proved and the ultimate fact presumed so that the presumption isn't a purely arbitrary mandate. As the paper talks about a little bit, they're, they're borrowing a little bit from state constitutional law. And then the court goes on to say, in this particular case, it was rational to infer a train car derailment is due to some negligence in how the tracks or trains were made or operated, though it doesn't really explain how it reached that conclusion. In your paper, you try to develop this idea of the rational basis then. So how do you come out on what that means? Yeah, so that's the, when I first encountered this case, the big puzzle I was trying to solve was, what does rational connection mean? A century later, there's been a lot of legal commentary. And indeed, this is not a standalone case. In subsequent cases, the U.S. Supreme Court applied the same doctrine to the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment and applied it to many federal as well as state statutory presumptions in both civil and criminal cases. But it never really explained very well what rational connection meant. It never really explained what it meant. It never really explained why that constitutional restriction was justified. The case which explained best what it meant is a, is a case called Leary versus United States, which is in 1965. And that case, yes, it's that Timothy Leary, the one you're thinking about. And it involves a prosecution against Timothy Leary for marijuana trafficking. So Timothy Leary decides to go on vacation with his daughter and son and a couple other folks. And they're driving from New York to Mexico. Mexico. They're denied entry in Mexico, and so they go back. And on the way back, they're stopped at U.S. Customs, who look inside the car and see marijuana seeds on the car floor. And so they search the car, and they, that reveals more marijuana, about half an ounce total. And then the U.S. government indicts Timothy Leary for, among other things, marijuana trafficking. That is, knowingly facilitating the transport and concealment of illegal marijuana with knowledge that that marijuana had been imported or brought into the U.S. illegally. And the statute has this presumption which says that basically if you possess the marijuana, it shall be presumed that you knew that the marijuana had been imported into the U.S., which means that here, given that he possessed the marijuana, it would be presumed that Leary knew that his marijuana wasn't homegrown, wasn't grown in the U.S., but had been imported from outside the country. That's an awfully strong presumption that you would always be imported. Now, I guess that's some kind of information forcing mechanism since the defendant would be the one to know where the marijuana was grown, maybe. Well, maybe. I mean, that this is part of the controversy involving the Supreme Court. In the case itself, Leary's lawyers challenged the constitutionality of this presumption by saying there's no 
rational connection between possession of marijuana and actually knowing whether it was grown in the U.S. or grown outside the U.S. And the Supreme Court agrees with Leary and reverses the conviction. And the reason I'm this Leary case is particularly important is that the court, in the course of articulating this doctrine from Turnipseed, declares that a criminal statutory presumption is constitutionally irrational unless it can be said with, quote, substantial assurance that the presumed fact is more likely than not to flow from the proved fact on which it is made to, to depend. And so here we have sort of the bare phrase rational connection. In Leary, it becomes a much more elaborated idea, basically in the run of cases, given the proven fact, the presumed fact has to be true more than half the time. And then they apply this doctrine in Leary's case. So they looked not only at the legislative history of the presumption, but also at public information that existed after Congress enacted the presumption. And they concluded, look, the evidence seems pretty strong that most marijuana is in fact imported, not homegrown, but there wasn't enough reliable evidence to conclude that most marijuana users knew that to be so. In other words, the presumption is unconstitutionally irrational because most people who possess marijuana don't know where it's grown, let alone that it's grown outside the U.S. So Leary is an example of how the doctrine developed over time to carry this very specific, as a very kind of probabilistic articulation. And the paper takes that as a given, but the more difficult question that it addresses is, what justifies this doctrine at all? It's sort of a curious thing to read the U.S. Constitution to restrict the legislative discretion to write legal presumptions anyway. So if I may, let me try to break this down into two pieces. At least I see two pieces in your paper. Let me ask the back question first. As a normative matter, it seems to me that you support the Leary position that a presumed fact is more likely than not true when the found fact has been made out. Is that true? So normatively, are you in agreement with Leary? So in the paper, I hedge a bit, in part because when I was writing the paper, my goal wasn't to provide a full-throated defense of Leary turnipsey doctrine. It was a little bit more modest or less ambitious, depending on how you want to think about it. And that was, is there some way of justifying this doctrine at all, given that under federal constitutional law, it can't simply be derived from an argument about judge or jury discretion, an argument about separation of powers, an argument about the due process clause in other contexts, given that under general constitutional law, we only subject statutes to rational basis scrutiny, which is much more lenient than the kind of leery turnip seed articulation. I can understand that. I can imagine several other alternatives to the rule. So for example, you mentioned that one possibility, and I think others have suggested it, is that the proven fact has to be relevant to the presumed fact. So it is not 50%, but it's at least it pushes the ball forward in some way. Mm -hmm. To my mind, there's also this idea that it could be comparative. So 
The example I thought about was, let's say the law presumed that a rose was red absent any other additional information, and it turns out that 40% of roses are indeed red, but you have 20% that are white and 20% that are pink and 20% are some other color. That would be unconstitutional under this 50% rule, and that doesn't seem right. It seems like the presumption that the rose is red, given that 40% of them are red, comparatively speaking versus all the other colors, red is the most common color, and that would be a good presumption. Right. The only thing I'd add to that example is that presumptions are always really estimating the conditional probability of the presumed fact given the proved fact. So you're in your example, it may be the case that the unconditional probability of roses being red are 40%, but given some proven fact, we might get a better estimate of whether or not in those situations the rose is red or isn't. So in that context, I confess I'm attracted to the rule just because it instantiates this value of accuracy in adjudicative findings, which I'm certainly not the first one to say that people who care about the due process clause read that into it. But it struck me, given how the rest of constitutional law is extremely deferential to the legislative or judicial authority to write presumptions, why should we have this thing at all? And so I started really from that position and said, okay, is there a plausible justification for treating presumptions differently under constitutional law, given that. And that's where the paper started in trying to develop a plausible normative justification for turnip seed doctrine. Yeah, and I certainly got that from the article, which is that the main thrust is not so much the specifics of the probability moves, but really the question of, well, is this really something that the Constitution should police at all? And I guess the question becomes, why can't the legislature do this however it wants? So the way I think about it is the legislature could have removed the element entirely. For example, in turnip seed, what you have is presumed negligence based on injury. Well, the legislature could have easily made it strict liability, and at that point, you don't need the negligence at all. So why is it that we're going to limit the presumptions that the legislature is going to make? Yeah, so that's exactly where I started with, too. Let me use an old example. The example I'm borrowing here is from the state constitutional law that dealt with this first, and that's possessing alcohol. Suppose you want to criminalize the sale of alcohol. You might want to if it's prohibition, but it's very hard for you to prove intent. And so you can do a bunch of things. You can say someone who possesses alcohol shall be presumed to have the intent to sell it, right? And so that would be a presumption. But you could also simply criminalize the possession of alcohol, period, and not have a presumption at all. And you could criminalize the possession of alcohol on the premise that that's a pretty good proxy. That is to say, people who tend to possess alcohol also intend to sell it. Now, that's not invariably true. You could possess alcohol in public or on Main Street or something like that. And the question that also made this a pretty complicated puzzle is, if we all agree that a legislature has the authority to do that, and if we all agree that constitutional law subjects that only to rational basis review, and even if we all agree that even with respect to something like where the legislature allocates the burden of production and persuasion, right, 
who has to prove the elements in civil law as opposed to criminal law, that the legislature has some degree of discretion in doing that. Why should we even bother with regulating presumptions? After all, the legislature can choose either to criminalize possession under certain circumstances or say we take the possession as triggering a presumption, a rebuttable presumption that you had the intent to sell. And so that's the that's what makes it a sort of complicated normative question. And the answer that I ultimately came up with is basically this. What's the difference between a likely inaccurate presumption as opposed to a likely inaccurate factual premise of a statute? The main difference is that a presumption forces juries or judges and bench trials, if unrebutted, to express, to say something is true, to find it when it's likely not true. And so the analogy I think of is if a presumption forces a finding in a case in which there would be a a jury that's the fact finder, from the outside, the jury is the named author of that finding. But in fact, it's been partly written by a ghostwriter, the legislature, the agency, or whoever it was that adopted that presumption. Now, that by itself isn't a problem unless people are more willing to accept adjudicative findings for their truth as compared to the asserted factual premises of legislation. I may not know the particulars of this or that court case, but the idea is, in general, I'm going to tend to accept court findings as true way more often than I'll accept what politicians claim to be the factual basis for legislation. And why is that? Not because I know the particulars of the court case, but because of the certain general features of adjudication that I'm going to rely on. Impartial judges, the equal opportunity to present evidence, and other accuracy-enhancing features that the political process typically doesn't have. Now, that by itself is still isn't a problem unless I'm, from the outside, I, average citizen, can't really see how presumptions work, let alone identify whether they're likely inaccurate. And so if a likely inaccurate presumption leads to an adjudicative finding that I rely on as true, then I'm going to over-rely on that finding as an accurate statement about the state of the world. And if I do, to that extent, I now hold inaccurate views about the state of the world. Is it only the factual inaccuracy, or is there something about political accountability and blame? So to the extent that the fact is wrong, and people figure out that the fact is wrong, for example, it comes out in the media or whatever it happens to be, Mm -hmm. the presumption suggests that the blameworthy party is the judiciary, or at least the fact finder, so it would be the jury. Whereas when it is a improper or inaccurate legislative premise, the blame lies with the legislature. And it's very clear that the blame lies with the legislature. So given the current state of constitutional law, namely that it subjects most legislative actions to rational basis review, I don't think it's a political accountability story because rational basis review doesn't require the factual premises of statutes to be true or close to true or likely true. 
it's much, much more lenient than that. It basically says that it has to be conceivably true. You'd have to believe it and not be crazy is the sort of rough translation. And so a political accountability story about turnip seed doctrine doesn't square with how we treat the factual premises of statutes, which don't have presumptions, right? The story that I'm suggesting here turns on what makes a presumption distinctive and unique, namely that it forces a finding on the part of the adjudicator, the jury or the judge in a bench trial. Now, I should say, even if you accept all the premises that I've just walked you through, some of them are empirical about what do actually people think about adjudicative findings as opposed to what politicians say about legislation. Some of it normative about the extent to which this stuff should matter relative to other values. Even if you accept those things, you still have to make an additional step to say that this should be a matter of constitutional law. Because even if holding inaccurate views about the state of the world is a bad thing, that by itself isn't enough. It has to be so bad to restrict the legislature's authority to trade off that accuracy for some other net social benefit, right? And so we make trade-offs for accuracy all the time. Here, it's got to be so bad that constitutional law has to restrict the legislature's ability to trade off that accuracy. This is why I'm saying this is not a full-throated defense of turnipsy doctrine. It's instead an effort to say, what does a pure justification of this doctrine look like given the rest of constitutional law? It's quite amazing because if we really took turnip seed, or at least turnip seed as interpreted by Leary seriously, it seems that you're getting rid of an awful lot of information forcing presumptions. Uh, we use these a lot, or at least in theory, they make sense to place the burden on the party that can best provide the information. And the presumption is not necessarily one that is more likely than not that the presumed fact is true. It's just that we stick it on the party that we want to talk and to bring in evidence. Yeah, that's right. So likely inaccurate presumptions, which the legislature says that they're going to adopt anyway, because it'll force the hand of the other side, that those are ones that are up for grabs. And if we took Turnipseed and Leary Doctrine seriously, it is still on the books and it's still applied, it would affect not just employment law, which got sort of gotten interested in this, or tort law, but basically every body of law you can think of, in part because presumptions of this sort are a durable feature of, of every body of law, particularly important when it comes to questions of causation, which are often difficult to suss out. You know, think, for example, the burden of proof of a plaintiff to show the relationship between fracking and contamination of groundwater. Sometimes it might be easy. Sometimes it might be hard. Uh, now, in that particular instance, the information forcing and the accuracy may match up simply because it's defendants who are in a better position to know that than plaintiffs. But you're right. In some cases, it may not match up, in which case the constitutional law answer is that's because we value accuracy above the information forcing function. So let me ask you a final question before we wrap this up. Where do you see that further work needs to be done in this area of presumptions? So you've taken a first dive, I think, into the presumption area. You see some problems. 
He said, you're not doing a full-throated defense of the presumption doctrine. Where do you think you might pursue further research or that you'd like to see other people pursue further research? I think that what I tried to do in the second half of the paper and what I think is still sort of an open question, at least to me, is how this doctrine in particular and how presumptions in general actually affect, if at all, the litigation behavior of litigants at both the filing stage and their strategic decisions thereafter. What do they actually do and how might, for example, this doctrine play a part in those strategic decisions? Take, for example, one of the illustrative examples in the paper concerns the presumption of dangerousness in the Bail Reform Act. Um, Basically, if you're applying for bail, there's a presumption if you're a federal defendant that if you have been indicted for a particular set of federal crimes, including selling drugs, for which a, there's a prison sentence of 10 years or more, you're presumed to be a danger to the community. And if you can't rebut that presumption, you're denied bail. This has a pretty important effect on how bail applications get decided, or at least the evidence seems to suggest that. But as the paper talks about in some detail, what would a challenge to that presumption under turnip seed leery doctrine look like? It is certainly plausible, given the available evidence, that this is a likely inaccurate presumption. How would the government respond? And how would a court ultimately apply and decide this doctrine, given the reference class problems that come with estimating the probability that the presumed fact is true, given the proven fact. I spend some time in the paper trying to suss out how this constitutional doctrine carries these conceptual difficulties. But as far as I know, I don't know how, first of all, how many lawyers are aware of this doctrine as a potential argument when a presumption applies in their particular case. And to the extent they do, how does it affect how they litigate cases. And I just don't know the answer to that question. I don't think anybody's figured that out. Well, Sachin, thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our discussion, and I certainly look forward to seeing how you develop these ideas going forward. Thanks for having me. As I think our discussion suggests, Sachin's paper raises a number of important questions. Chief among these is whether Leary's more likely than not interpretation of turnip seed is normatively desirable. After all, if we take Leary seriously, then we get curious results, as I suggested with my Rose hypothetical, as well as jeopardize our ability to use information-forcing presumptions. Although we didn't have time for it in the interview, I should note that Sachin's paper details one other problem with the more likely-than-not rule, the so-called reference class problem. To determine whether a given presumption is constitutional under Leary requires us to measure a probability, but that probability... For example, whether a defendant is a safety risk for purposes of bail, given the crime that is charged, that probability depends critically on what subpopulation you examine. We won't go into this here, but those of you interested in the issue should take a look at his draft. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Excited Utterance is sponsored in part through a grant from the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. 
Research assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Nunn. I'm your host, Ed Cheng, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.